We are in Haggai, Haggai chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 12, and as you know, what's happening here is uh, they've come back from captivity, 339, 338. They started building, laid the uh, altar, laid the foundation, got opposition. They just gave up. It's too hard. Uh, Now it's 520, and Darius is the king. They've gone through Cyrus, Cambyses, his son. He's died. They had a little bit of turmoil for uh, some pseudo smyrtas came in. They didn't know who was the king. Darius is now reestablishing good order. The whole empire could have fallen right here. Darius kind of picks it up and organizes it again. And we're in his second year of ruling and reigning. And it's interesting, that's when God calls the prophet. Now, the people should have been building this entire time. uh, But it appears God kind of let it slide but when Darius gets back in, gets in office and he gets, starts organizing the kingdom, that's where God kind of puts the, pushes the reset button and says, okay, let's get this done. I'm not saying God was waiting until they had good leadership in the Persian Empire, but it is interesting that it's in his second year that he says, let's, let's get this done. There may have been too much chaos during these years. I don't know. That's, but they, they've had a, you know, 17, 18 years to build the temple. So here they, they go in chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, we've gone through those other verses where he tells them, you know, why is my house not built? Your house is built. And then he says last week we saw that, you know, I'm, I'm the one causing all the trouble. In your community, in your society, you're not giving, you know, giving attention to what I need done, and so I'm destroying your crops. You're not getting anything completed that you want. And so the people are going to listen. That's the first thing that's impressive about this verse 12 is the people are going to respond. And again, after we've gone through all of the other prophets that we've gone through in the Old Testament, and the, you just, you know, they make an announcement, and you just know it's just dead end until the end of the book. And all they can look forward to is someday in the future of God restoring Israel. But otherwise, they're not going to respond. Jeremiah, no. Isaiah, no. Uh, you know, go through Habakkuk, uh, Amos. But here, and again, the dates, the first message was August 29th in our date. Uh, They've got significance in in their Hebrew calendar also, especially when we get down here. But this was about, the first message was August 29th, and now September 21st is going to pop up here in these verses. And that's about three weeks. It's like, you know, 23 days. And the work is going to begin on the temple. Remember, they, they, they they couldn't get the logs from from Lebanon up in Phoenicia. Uh, it had shipping problems. They had, you know, worker problems. They had all these issues for almost 20 years. Well, now, within three weeks, the wood is there. They've got the stone cutters. Everything's up and ready to go. And then by the time we get done tonight, there's going to be about another three weeks from September 21st to October 17th, which is in the Jewish calendar, the last day of the harvest feast the, the 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 feast of tabernacles or booths it's the last day of uh, a great crowd in jerusalem uh they're celebrating the harvest and god is going to give them a message tonight and it's completely different than what he started with here six weeks before kind of like you got time to build your own house what about mine they respond and three weeks later god has a very positive message for them so it's a very interesting book if you know after when you get familiar with the Old Testament, there's so many prophets that are just rejected. They never get a chance to give a positive message. Haggai gives a, gives a command, gives a directions, and is able to now get positive with them. But here we go, chapter 1, verse 12. Um, the last verse, verse 10 and 11 of what we saw last week. Therefore, God says, because, you have, you, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produced, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands, I'm shutting it down. Now, I'm going to stop here. I, I, I should I should keep going. But as I'm, I'm reading this, you remember Joel. We went through Joel. Again, we're not sure where to date, put Joel. We put it down here. Uh, but Joel comes out and says, you know, you've got all this disaster going on. You need to come back to God. And it's it just like, it's, it's the people that apparently have come back from the captivity, and because they've, they've got difficulty in their community, Joel just assumes it's time to repent and come back to God. And that, that's interesting because that's exactly what this book is saying. If your economy is crashing, if, I mean, just this one little window into this, this, this text, 
if your economy is crashing and you can't get things under control, you need to come back and find out what does God want you to do. You're missing God. And that's interesting because Joel begins, and they've got disaster, and he just goes, there's a problem. We've got to see God and find out what's wrong. So it's almost building on this kind of a context. Nonetheless, he says that, and the, here's the people's response in verse 12. And there's three groups, the governor, the high priest, and then the remnant. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, the governor, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. And so when they hear that very first message, which included the reprimand that you're not getting anything because I'm blowing it all away, they, they obeyed. They listened to this. And it's interesting here, some notes that I've got written down here. The first point is it's amazing to see people respond to a prophet. Uh, immediately, they respond immediately, and they dis- de- respond decisively. They don't say, yes, we're sorry, we're wrong, but they also start making plans. So within three weeks, they're building. Now again, again, I'm going to bring this up again later, but re- understand, imagine not having any of the paperwork. You're going to build, not, not a house, not a deck on your house, but you're going to build a, a public building. You're going to build a governmental building. You're going to have a, well, it's a temple, and, and it's it's a big deal. And you've got all kinds, of, and you're, you don't have your own empire. You've got to work within the restraints of the Persian Empire, surrounded by people that won't ship you stuff because they don't want you doing it. But now within three weeks, you've got your building permits. You've got the workforce. You've got the lumber being shipped in. And they're coming in in logs. We're not, we're not ordering it from Home Depot, you know, finished lumber, all dried, and just looking for a straight stud. You're getting logs. Someone's going to have to saw those logs into timber, rough timber. They're going to have to be surfaced down. They're going to have to be dried. And you're going to have to have laborers for all those different phases. When I do woodworking, I, I order in a 200 board feet of oak. And I want it 50, or 25, 30 seconds, straight line, ripped one side. And uh, it comes in and, you know, I start cutting with a, with a machine, a table saw. It's like, you made this? Well, I cut like four boards and glued them together, yeah. Uh, these guys are sawing down trees, floating logs through the Mediterranean Sea, sawing the huge logs into planks, surfacing them down. I mean, it, it's a lot of work. There, when the three weeks, also you got stones You've got the payment schedule. You've got the supervisors. You've got the inspectors. Because inspectors are going to go around, and not just, you know, we think of an inspector being a nuisance, but someone's checking, making sure, you, you know, we've got to change that because it's going to fall in. All that is being ready to go. Within three weeks, it's up and running. So when it says, a point one, it's amazing to see this. They respond spiritually. And that's two things that are going to come up here, is you've got the Word of God, that they're responding to, and how do they respond to the Word of God? They respond by doing the work of God. That, that's exactly what's happening here. Haggai calls them with the Word of God and gives them a direction for the work of God. They repent hearing the Word, and they instantly take action on the work of God. And it almost goes hand in hand. The Word of God, the work of God, especially in this book. Number two, uh, the people responding. Uh, governor, high priest, the remnant. Uh, they obeyed, and interesting, it says this, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. Now, they are the same thing. It's The prophet is speaking the words of the Lord, but they're hearing, in a sense, the word of the Lord, but they're also hearing the directions that Haggai is given. It, it, they're, both of them are, are, are listed there together. Uh, and the people obeyed because they feared the Lord. And again, I don't think we should, you know, well, fear means they respected the Lord. I mean, that, it does mean that. But there's a place where, especially in, in this climate right here, the reason there is no temple is because God told Jeremiah, I'm going to burn it down with the Babylonians. You can say Nebuchadnezzar burned it down, yes, but he was the vehicle God prepared to burn down the temple because the people were not obedient. 
So this, I, I mean, yes, to talk about, well, the fear of God doesn't mean you're afraid of Him. It means you respect Him, and that is true. You know, I want my children to have a fear of Mr. Weemers, you know, a little bit of respect. But at the same time, this context right here, when it says they feared the Lord, it's not just respect. I mean, they're like, you understand what he just got done telling them? You don't have anything because I'm blowing it away. You're planting your crop and I'm not sending rain. You're taking a harvest and I'm blowing it away. You're getting coins in your purse and they're falling out because I'm putting holes in them. It's like, that doesn't mean you need to respect me. That means you need to be afraid. I am destroying you. And you're rebuilding a temple that I burnt to the ground. So when we say right here in this verse, I don't think we need to you know, pull any punches and try to temper it down. It says, uh, and I'm reading off the notes here on page 1 in the English Standard Version, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. I think they realized, we got one or two choices. We're going to die here in this new province of Judah, or we're going to do what he tells us to. I think they were afraid of God, which again, there's a place for that. Uh, and then point five, their God, Yahweh, it's interesting, uh, is used twice here. I've got that in the box, the word that is their God, and right there, their God of Yahweh. Uh, that's interesting because it happens twice in this verse and once again in the, in the coming verse. But God does not, has not yet called them his people. Remember what he called them, what was it, chapter 1, verse 2? He called them this people. This people do not, and he, they, have, they weren't building, doing the work. He doesn't say, my, I brought my people back and my people aren't doing what I want them to. He says, this people is not doing it. And I'm taking their stuff away. So they obeyed the voice of their God, Yahweh, which is interesting. It's pointed out twice there. Uh, and a big verse is coming up in chapter 1, verse 13. Uh, but then uh, uh, along with that, he calls them... This, this verse is the first verse where the word remnant is used. And if you've done any kind of Bible study or... Yeah, done any theme studies of the scriptures, you know what the word remnant means. It, it, there's always the remnant. Uh, you're going to have the people of God, but there's always within the people of God the remnant, which is those are the people of God. These are the people that show up for the potluck, but within that group is the remnant. Maybe they're not even at the potluck, but the, within that group of believers, there's the remnant that these are the people of God. The people were sent. God destroyed a bunch of the Jews, but he sent the remnant away with full plans of bringing them back. That was one of Jeremiah's visions of where the people were saying uh, it was during the 597 captivity when e Ezekiel and all the laborers were taken. They were taken to Babylon, and the people said, well, God's just cleansing us. We got rid of all the bad people but we were protected. I'm still here in Jerusalem because I'm protected. And that was, the, that was the talking point. That was on all the news shows. It's like, well, we must have made God happy because we didn't have to go to Babylon. And then Jeremiah comes out on his, you know, the, on his Sunday morning program. And he says, I had a vision. I, I, had, I saw two baskets of figs. One was a basket of good figs. One was a basket of rotten figs. And God says, they've got this turned around. This basket of good figs, I took them to Babylon. The bad figs, the rotten figs, I left them here. I'm going to destroy them here. I took the good figs away because they're the remnant. I'm going to bring people back from there and rebuild this nation. So Jeremiah was completely opposite of what all the talk shows were saying. He said, no, no, it wasn't the, the rotten figs that left. It was the figs that could be preserved and something could be used from them. If you're still here doing your talk shows, you're the rotten figs. You're the ones that God is going to destroy here in Jerusalem. And so that idea of the remnant is always the undercurrent, those that are actually following God. You may have a mass of people following God, are saying they are, but there's always that remnant. Interesting, in this verse is where God, there we are, they're referred to in Scripture as 
with all the remnant of the people. So then Zerubbabel, Joshua, with all the remnant of the people. And that's, the first, that's almost like God admitting or saying now, these are my people. There's, there's this, they're coming together. They're getting the same, same vision. Uh, and that's point six. Uh, it goes on. So they're, they're going to be obedient. And I'm going to read. I'm just going to read, if you don't mind, uh, because it gets kind of exciting in chapter two. But I'm going to read through. We're going to talk all the way through uh, chapter two, verse nine. But I want to read through it. So I'm going to keep reading right here. So, and all the people feared the Lord. Verse 13 in the NIV. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. He said, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant. And that's going to be important, the stirring up of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. See, there it is again, their God. That's Yahweh Almighty, their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius. So that's September 21st, 520 B.C. So you can see that's about a three weeks, like 23 days later. They're working on the temple. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the 21st day of the seventh month, so that, now we're jumping down to October 17th, chapter 2. That's about, you can see that about another three weeks later. On the 21st day of the seventh month, or six weeks after Haggai originally spoke to them on August 29th, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you. So right here on this day, they've, been, they've worked for about three weeks, and they're seeing this thing come together. And what, what's interesting about this, uh, if, if you can put this in perspective, and I don't know if this will amaze you or shock you or open your eyes or something, but maybe it's obvious. It's kind of obvious. But they're starting with very little. They've got very little to work with, and so they're st- they're, they're, they have their resources they're oppressed they've got very little so that's their starting point but their goal is a temple to replace the temple of solomon uh which is a very lofty goal they've got remember how much stuff solomon had i mean david started collecting material god says you can't build it you know the story but david didn't stop he didn't build it but he drew up the plans he had the architects lay it out. He started bringing in supplies, stockpiling beams and stockpiling stones and getting all the metal, the gold. And so when Solomon says, okay, he's, dad's dead, let's build the temple, uh, they did it in seven years. All the stuff was there. And so David, or Solomon, started with tremendous resources uh, at the top of the height of the empire, or the, yeah, the kingdom, and they built Solomon's temple. And it was glorious. One of the uh, most magnificent buildings of the ancient world. Uh, and that's what the people remember. That's what they saw burned down. And that's their goal. Their goal is this. I mean, think, you know, Michael Jordan in the NBA. But they're starting with, you know, a little short kid that, can't dribble a ball and he his goal is to be michael jordan i mean i mean that's it's like their their goal is ridiculous and they're going to get started and they're not going to make it when they get done and they 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 finish basketball camp and they've gone through all the league preparations and they played all the tournament teams all these years of preparation they they barely scrape by and make their varsity team at a small school it's like, and they go, I'm never going to be Michael Jordan. And they, and they get, they're like, we did all this. 
We started with little, but we had such great hopes and expectations. Their goal is way too lofty. And so God is going to come to them, and he's going to say, he's going to be speaking about this temple, but he's going to actually tell them. Well, watch what you say. He's going to project. They're looking at Solomon's temple, and they're so far from it. They're so far from it. No one even, no one even can pretend we've replaced Solomon's temple. But God looks at them and says, no, what, what you've done here, it, it's going to be far surpassing because what they've done is they've began the next phase. If you think eschatologically, again, we're looking at this as history. They're fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecies. They're fulfilling what Isaiah was talking about. They, they've returned and they've begun building. But this, they're not, this is done. We're done with Solomon's temple. They've started making progress to another temple. It's going to go through the Herod's temple of the New Testament, which itself is going to be destroyed. But they've started making progress to what is what we would call the end times. And so this verse right here, you see these people, in a sense, trapped in time, living right here. And they're stuck in 520 uh, trying to replace Solomon's temple, they think. But God is going to come and tell them, listen, well, well, let me just read it to you. Haggai's second message on the 17th, after six weeks, after three weeks of working on it, Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, governor, and Joshua, the high priest, and to the remnant of these people. Ask them, who of you is left that saw this house in its former glory? How many of you remember Solomon's temple? How does it look to you now? Yeah, it looks like Michael Jordan's playing in your little 1A school system somewhere in Iowa. Does it not seem to you like nothing? What you've built is not even a scratch on what you're trying to replace. But now, he says, Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people. So the three, the governor, the high priest, and all you people. He, he stirred them all. And now they've started, they followed the word of God and started the work. But they're looking and going, we've got this, which is nothing. And we're trying to get to here. And they're like, well, that, don't be negative. Let's, let's, but they all know we're not going to make it. He says, no, be strong. He says, for I am with you. Now, that, that's a huge statement right here. I am with you. I've now engaged. You've started doing the work. I've now come alongside of you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. Now, again, he goes way past Solomon, goes way back to the Exodus This is what I told you I was going to do when I brought you out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Just keep building. And you may look back and say, we're never going to make it. You don't know what you're doing. It goes right back to what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. You don't know what God is doing. Like we talk about Abraham. He, He obeyed and went, but he didn't know where he was going. I mean, how can you be obedient? Well, you do what you know you're supposed to. But God is talking about this big picture. It's like, I don't even understand the big picture. Don't worry about it. You just keep doing what you're doing. These people, they've been working for three weeks. They're looking at Solomon's temple, remembering it, saying, okay, well, we've got to make this. This has to be taller. This has to be wider. This has to have more gold on it. And it's like, we don't have any more gold. It's like, we, we can't make it. It's like, we're not getting it. It's like, what are we going to do? He says, you just keep doing it. And he says this. This is what... He says, I am with you, do not be a, don't be afraid. Verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a, now, again, this jumps, I think, and we're going to talk more about this next week. This jumps in verse 6, this jumps from 520 all the way through the New Testament, the, the Herod's temple, all the way to the end. In fact, this verse is what's quoted in Hebrews when it says, uh, when God says, I'm again going to shake the earth, w- meaning you've got the temporal things and you've got eternity, and I'm going to come back and shake the earth and get rid of all the temporal and things are going to become eternal. That's where they get this verse from. So what God is saying, what you're doing today is pre- preparing for something that is in a distant future. I mean, this, I think this goes eschatological for us. In verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says, and this is Haggai speaking uh, on the 17th of October, 520. In a little while, now you see there's that word, a little while. 
Well, a little while from 520 would be like, you know, 519 or, or you know, 515. But according to the book of Hebrews, that little while hasn't even come yet in 63 AD. They're still waiting for that little while to manifest. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth. The first time he shook it was when he came down on Mount Sinai and the mountain shook. He's going to do that again. The sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. I'm not just going to shake Mount Sinai. I'm going to shake all the nations. And and the desired of all the nations will come and will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. At this time in 520, the Persian Empire has all the gold. They've got all the control. They've got access to the forest. They get to give the people of Judah permission. You can go cut down some of the trees in our forest across the river. You know, they're on that side, so the forest across the river. You can go get some of our trees. God is saying, listen, you guys are just doing the groundwork of something I'm preparing. I'm going to shake everything. And all the gold that's out there, it's mine. It's all coming back here. It's not going to come back in 520. Zerubbabel's not going to see it. Joshua's not going to see it. Haggai's not going to see it. But your job today is just keep building, doing what you can. You won't even attain to Solomon's glory. But do it because I am with you. Don't be afraid. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. What you guys are building today is more glorious than anything Solomon could have imagined. Jesus picked up on that when he talked about in all of Solomon's glory, even the flowers of the field are more glorious. Now, God is talking about shaking this temporal world and doing something even more glorious uh, than flowers and more glorious than the temple of Solomon. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord. In this place where, on Mount, Mount Moriah, where they're rebuilding the temple in 520, he says, in this place, I will grant peace. And the glory here is going to be more than the former house. The former house was Solomon's. The present house is what we would call Zerubbabel's temple that they're building. Zerubbabel's temple is going to morph into Herod's temple. Again, without giving a whole bunch of background, when Herod became king, they still had this temple, Zerubbabel's temple on Mount Moriah. And Herod wanted, you know, he was a, a fanatic builder. He wanted to build everything. And he was very, he was very intelligent. He was very, a great leader wasn't a, a godly man, wasn't a moral man necessarily, but had great vision, was, was able to do great uh, use his resources. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I want to run off and talk about a Masada where he built the three hanging palaces. Uh, he just did crazy building. If you couldn't do it, he would figure out a way. You can't build that there. Uh, like the Elon Musk of, of the, the first century B.C. Here, they, you say, you can't build that. If, if Herod wanted electric cars, and they said you can't have electric cars in, in, in 40 B.C., Herod would have came up with a way. He would have found a crew, and they would have had electric chariots. I mean, that, that was what Herod did. So, okay, there's, that was, there's layers to that. Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. He's the one who killed the Bethlehem boys. And so that would be the first attack. Then there's Herod uh, uh, Archelaus, which was his son who would inherited the throne. But he was so, that's why Joseph went to Egypt. Because, oh no, no, he, he came back from Egypt. He didn't go to Bethlehem because Archelaus was ruling. He went up and settled in Nazareth. Archelaus, uh, Rome took the kingdom from him. They said, no, you are unworthy. To, he was just too cruel. So the, the Romans says, you can't. So they took it from him. And then they, they divided up Herod Antipas. Uh, and then you got, uh, that would be uh, another son. He ruled Galilee. Uh, the, the, the kingdom was given then to uh, the governors started ruling. Like Pilate was one. And there's there like several of them, like seven. But 
he also had a son, Agrippa, Agrippa I. And Agrippa I, there's Herod, the, Herod Philip also. So you got Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and then you got Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa, with, we got all, like, we need a family tree. Because everyone's name's Herod. It, it, that's what's confusing. Uh, but Herod Agrippa I, he became king in 41 while uh, Felix and Festus were governors. Remember in Acts when Paul stands before Felix and then stands before Festus and he's testifying? Well, Herod and his sister Bernice show up to visit. And Herod I, uh, excuse me, that'd be Herod II, Herod Agrippa II. Because Herod Agrippa I is the one who cuts off James' head in the book of Acts and puts Peter in prison. That's Herod Agrippa I. Uh, he then goes to Caesarea and gives a speech and dies. Uh, the Bible says that an angel struck him and worms ate him. Herod says, or uh, uh, Josephus says something very similar that he was giving a speech at Caesarea, and he was complete, garment was completely silver. It's all silver. So when he stepped out to give his speech, it was the time of a famine. Just like Agabus says there's a famine in the land. And so he was bringing in grain, and he was shipping grain up to uh, Phoenicia, and they were very grateful for it. So they all came, and he's giving this big speech, and, and they so appreciated his leadership uh, that they all start shouting, this is a God, the voice of a God and not a man. And uh, Josephus records that as he was talking, Agrippa realized an owl just landed on a wire somewhere and realized this is a bad omen. And, uh, and then he fell over. I mean, with all that silver on it, it might have been heat stroke. But anyway, Josephus said they took him back and he couldn't recover, had terrible stomach pains, and he died seven days later. So the Bible makes it sound like an angel struck him and he died on the spot. Josephus, which would be accurate, Josephus makes it sound like, you know, that he fell over, they took him back, and he laid there and suffered for seven days and probably was eaten by worms. So that's Herod Agrippa. He ruled from 41 to 44 A.D. He's got a son, Herod Agrippa II, who is the Herod who hears Paul speak. So you've got Herod with Jesus. Oh, and then Herod Antipas is the one who uh, Jesus, yeah, he wants Jesus to do a miracle. You know how the high priests send him to, to the Sanhedrin? And the Sanhedrin convict Jesus, you're worthy of death, but they've got to go to Pilate to get permission. And Pilate's talking, to Jesus, talking and he realizes Jesus is innocent and has that little conversation of what is truth. So he goes out and says, I'm not, I'm done. I'm going to wash my hands of this. And, but before he did that, G Jesus, they said he came from Galilee. He goes, Galilee? Well, Antipas is in town. This is not my problem. He's not my, my jurisdiction. So he sends him over to Herod's palace in Jerusalem. And that's where Antipas gets up. And they says, oh, I've been wanting to meet you. Can you do a miracle for me? And the guy, Jesus just stares at him. No conversation. What's interesting, he talks to Pilate, has a, a long conversation about truth and my kingdom, where I come from. And Pilate's like, hmm, and makes a decision. You're good to go. We just got to get you out of this political mess. Where Agrippa, or uh, Antipas, he doesn't even talk to him. Uh, and then the, he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate was like, oh, great, here he comes back. And so, so those are your Herods. So Herod the Great is the one who built the temple. Now, the reason for mentioning that is the glory of this temple that they're building will be greater than the former temple. I think they're talking eschatologically. This temple is going, uh, eventually they're going to declare peace on this mount. But Herod, when he began, comes building, he convinces the priests, and it took him a little, some time to do it because they don't trust him. Uh, and he doesn't trust them. But he says, I want to build a temple that's going to amaze the Roman world. And so they, they let him do it. They let, they let him first build the temple, and it was very, it was, they're watching very carefully because it would have been a, a brilliant move, saying, let me build your temple, we'll just bulldoze this, and 
ah, we ran out of resources and there's no temple. So they made sure they got the temple built. And then once he had the temple built, he extended the present temple mound, doubled the size of Solomon's temple mound that you see today. When you go up there, it's huge. That's all Herod's work, the retaining walls, the ashlar stones. Now, that temple of Herod's, which basically was Zerubbabel's temple, just remodeled. I mean, they took down stones and replaced stones, made it more, more beautiful physically. But that is the temple that Jesus walked into. That is the temple precinct that Jesus was on. And so this temple that they're building, this verse can be interpreted two ways. The glory of this present temple is going to be greater than the former. Now again, we do take into consideration the presence of God came down and dwelt in the presence or in the temple because we saw it leave in Ezekiel. We saw it come down during Solomon's prayer. The Shekinah glory was there. So God's presence was there. But in this little temple they're building now, that Solomon's going to update, the Messiah is actually going to walk in and teach in the precincts of that temple. So the glory of this little temple is going to be greater than anything Solomon's temple saw because it's going to see Jesus, the Messiah. But yet, this temple, they're moving into history. This temple is going to continue uh, beginning the phase of when Jesus eventually comes back. And that's where this sounds, when it says, I'm going to shake the heavens again. That doesn't sound like Jesus coming in his ministry. Uh, that sounds like an eschatological verse. And then the silver is mine, the gold is mine. That wasn't Jesus' ministry of collecting all the goods of the world. Uh, he was collecting people. He's fishing uh, for men. Anyway, verse 9. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace. Uh, and then right there with that word, we can run off into Zechariah 9, 9. When your king is coming to you on a donkey, and Jesus came to them on a donkey, and he says, you'll not see, uh, they're saying, hallelujah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he says, you will not see me come again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then I'll bring you peace. He offered him peace the first time they rejected it. So there's a whole lot going on in those verses there. Jesus coming the first time. Because remember, and you know this, and it's still, it's still at this phase of Scripture, up into the Gospels, it wasn't really until the New Testament that they began some people just like we are we dabble with eschatology we know we talk about and i've I, you've seen me over the years adjust my eschatology like i'm, I'm convinced now for example the locusts that come up uh, this is just recent and the locusts that come up and they look like they got hair like a woman a face like a man the teeth like a lion that all those are from the uh, genesis 6 the Nephilim, the fallen, the, the fallen gods, the, uh, the, the angels that bred with women that produced the Nephilim, that were all locked up in Tartarus. It even t says that there's going to be a release of demons coming out. Well, those demons that are coming out or those that are being released are, are going to be those, those monstrous beings that were created with a half-human, half-angelic, and they're coming back. And it all, I mean, I could go on now for the next two hours, but that is something I did not understand. You just kind of read those verses and kind of, ah, I don't know. But I, I, once you put it in perspective, it's like that is exactly what's happening. God is going to open up the underworld and release everything he shoved down there at the flood and started history over, the genetic pool over. He's going to release those back up. It, uh, the Greeks would call them the titans. You know, uh, the, 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 the Ugaritic texts call them uh, the sons of God. Uh, the, the Psalms, that's where God says, uh, you are sons of God, uh, or you are gods, but you will die like mere men, because they were gods, but they're going to end up becoming mere men. But anyway, that's, that's just my point for saying that, is I might be wrong, and you're trying to figure this out, but there's going to come a time in history where it'll be clear, and you won't be like, Anyone who's speculating will be like, stop speculating. Read the textbook. This is, what it ha this is how it happened. And right here, up through the Gospels, some of these verses, they're speculating. Here, your, your king comes to you riding on a donkey, and he's going to bring peace. 
and he's going to set you free. All the wealth of the nations will be yours. But here comes Jesus riding on a donkey on his way to the cross and says, you know, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, you won't see me again until you finish the psalm that we just started today because I came in riding on a donkey, you rejected me, and now you're going to have to wait until I come back the second time and finish this psalm. It's like, what is he talking about? Well, here on this side of history, you know, with the New Testament looking back, it's like, well, here, let me explain it to you. I mean, you can explain it to a Sunday school teacher can explain it. You don't need some great theologian where right here in these verses here at this time, or even as we're looking at it, uh, the glory of this, this, this present house is going to be greater than the former house. I mean, are they talking just about Jesus or are they talking eschatological in the future? And the idea here, and I'll, I'll stop with this and go back to our text. The idea here is this is bigger than you can understand. This is bigger than you can unravel eschatologically. Just know that God is with you and I'm going to help you. I, I'm going to get this done. So, so don't, be, don't be afraid. And it's like, well, I don't understand. I don't understand how this could even work. That's, that's faith. That's where faith comes in. Do you understand that I've got a plan? Do you understand that I'm the Savior? Do you understand that I'm Lord? Yes, I understand. That. I believe that. Well, then trust me when I say just build this temple and it's going to be good. But it's not good. You haven't seen what I'm doing yet. And I think that can reflect into all of our lives that God is doing. We, we do what we know, but God is doing, like we've said in Hebrews, we've said it several other times, something bigger is happening. Not, not maybe. It's not maybe. Maybe something bigger is happening here. Well, no, no, no. That's the, no don't use the word maybe. Because if you believe the Bible, something bigger is happening here in our lives than what we can understand. Your job is to take the part you understand, execute it, stay committed to it, fear God, because He is on your side. Don't be afraid, and it's going to get done. What's going to get done? It's going to get done. But I don't understand it. Right, you don't need to. And that's kind of what's happening here. This is just coming, this is a a typical prophecy on October 17th of, of Haggai coming in saying, you guys have started. You've worked hard for three weeks. Some of you are getting discouraged saying, I don't know if we're going to make it. No. You're shooting become like Michael Jordan. You're trying to be Michael Jordan, but you're going to become the Messiah. You're gonna be, Michael Jordan is a mere man. Solomon's temple was a mere building built by men. You're getting prepared for the actual Messiah. If it's his first coming and he's going to walk into this temple... Or if it's his second coming where he's going to come down to the Mount of Olives and walk in with all of his glory and establish world peace. You are building that phase right now. So don't stop. I just, I just think this is not very good. That's, that's where the word of God encourages. Okay, I've got to get back to the notes. And uh, we're just going back to chapter 1, verse 12. And that's where we just said this right here. Uh, then Zerubbabel, uh, Joshua, and all the people uh, obeyed the voice of the Lord. Uh, they obeyed the message of the prophet because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord, and they started building. Verse 13, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. He says, I am with you. Once they started, once they started working right here, Haggai came and says, I am with you. Or the Lord says, declares Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua and the people. And now I want to turn the page and just look at that word right here. He stirred them up. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 13, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, uh, spoke. If you look on top of page 2, I don't have it numbered. I got the word messenger and squared right there. That is the word m-a-l-a-k and just to just show you this so you've got this m-a-l-a-k that's like the greek word angelos melek means messenger uh angelos means messenger and so you can have a prophet be a messenger of god but also god sends messengers from heaven which would be angels and you can be an apostle or called 
an angelos, you know, your angelos, like for example, of the seven churches, to the angelos of the church of Smyrna, I write. Well, that's to the messenger. And so, does that mean the pastor? Does that mean the church elder? Or does that mean there's an angel in charge of the church? Now, you can go this way if you want to, but most likely, it's the, the leader, the pastor, the head elder, or the apostle. Apostles are called angelos. Well, here's a case where the same word that's translated angels in the Old Testament, melech, because they're a messenger of God, is clearly now talking about Haggai, the prophet, because he's the melech of God. And so that's, that's what I've got drawn up right there. Uh, he's the messenger. And God tells him that he will be with him. That's the message. I, I'm with you. Just keep building. I am now, I'm no longer fighting you. I'm now with you trying to help you get this done. It is of my best interest, and that is things in our life. It is of God's best interest to help us do what we're doing because we're doing what he's called us to do. If we're doing something he doesn't want us to do, that's another whole story. He's trying to get us back on track. But if we're actively doing what he's called us to do, don't be afraid. He says, I am with you. Even if someone shows up to oppose you, just keep doing it. Don't quit. Uh, chapter 1, verse 14, looking on the notes. And the Lord stirred up the Spirit. Again, the three groups, the governor, the high priest, and the remnant. The word stirred up, I've got that now in a square box and underneath there. Um, it's interesting here, and I, I'm going to make a point, and you've got to decide and if, if this is the case, because I, I made this point earlier, is God, the remnant, those, not everybody, not everybody, not every jewish person came back from persia some of them stayed there but those whose hearts were stirred by the lord they returned so now be careful here i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna make what i think is a doctrinal statement uh meaning i'm gonna teach this like this is the truth uh but it, it may not it may not be fit every model because some would think, and I, I, I'm going to challenge this, the Holy Spirit is going to just randomly choose some people and stir them. They're like, you know, whatever they're doing during the day, all of a sudden it's like, you know, I think I'm going to go to church. You know what? I think I'm going to get serious about God. I think I'm going to go back to help rebuild the temple. That could be. But I think it's the people who are alert to the Word of God. Those who are seeking God, studying Scripture, listening to the Word, they're aware of what God is doing, and all of a sudden, they are the ones that get stirred. They see things happening in their lives. They see things happening in politics or in their culture. Or they see things happening in, in the spiritual dimension. If it's in church or something, it's like, ah, they see it, and the Spirit of God stirs them, and they begin to work. So I'm going to say, what I'm saying is I think you need, in my scenario, you first need the Word. You first need to know what God is going to do or does or what He's aiming for. And then when you start seeing or the Spirit starts speaking, you respond. It's like, yes, that's what I've been looking for. You get stirred and you return or you go to work. And this Word right here, uh, do you understand what I'm saying? Meaning... If, now here's an application. I, I, I'm going to stick with this. This is what I think happened in Persia. Some of them were waiting for the words of Jeremiah to be fulfilled. They were paying attention. Uh, there was teachers. That's Ezra and the, and the synagogue system came out of Babylon because there was, no, there was no temple there. They had no sacrifices. All they had was the scriptures. All they had was the words. So they developed the teaching, the synagogue, the scribe began to rise in Babylon. That's why the minimalists or those that are the textual critics that come against scripture say, ah, there was no Bible until they wrote it in Babylon. And they started making up a bunch of stuff. Because that is indeed where the scribes rose up because they have no temple. The priesthood is dismantled. They, the lead, whereas, and so they were over here, but they still got the text of Scripture. They still got the, the Levites. They've still got someone who knows Word. And so they focus on the teaching. That's where you're going to... We already started Ezra. Ezra's going to come out of that group. Now, 
if you have the word and the spirit moves, he's going to move in line with the word. But now imagine you're not going to have any Bible teaching. You just want to be stirred by the spirit. You're just going to do things that get you spiritual. You're just going to do things that are mystical. It's like, uh, okay, that, that doesn't fit my model. That's weird. Now, I mean, so you're getting stirred by a variety of things. Maybe it's emotions. Maybe it's desires. Maybe it's demonic. Uh, but the Spirit of God, He's going to stir people who are in the Word. So, keep that in mind. So what we here, here it is right here. I've got that in verse 14 uh, in a box. So stirred up. That's, that is the first word in the Hebrew. So stirred up. Uh, so that's emphatic. That means this, is, this verse is about stirring. This verse is about this. And if you look down there at the bottom, okay, uh, top of the next page, stir up is right there in the Hebrew. It's way yar. It comes from a word, it comes from the word er. And there's a breathing mark in front, maybe her, I don't know how to pronounce it. But that's the word. It means to rouse oneself. It means to awake. It means to be in a state of sleepiness and someone takes you and gets you on track and gets you alert and you start working. Meaning you're here but you don't know or you're just kind of coming back and now they, they focus you and send you off. It means awake. In fact, here's two places it's used. It's used throughout the Old Testament. Judges 5, verse 12. It's used three times in this little verse. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake. And that's where Deborah, you know the story, uh, they're being overrun by the Canaanites, and she calls on Barak and says, Barak, go fight. And Barak says, no, I'm not going to. They're, they're bad. He says, I'm not going to go unless you go. You want me as your general to go. Now, Deborah had risen up as a prophet. A woman had risen up as a prophet, I'll say 1200 B.C., in the land of Israel. And she was one of the judges. Now, this is a very unique story, very important story. Because, again, this, this, this section of the book of Judges needs to be taught. If I was the bishop, if I was the bishop of Christian America, I would write out this sermon and demand that it be preached for the next four weeks in every church, the story of Deborah. Because it's about a, a group of, uh, of Israel that were afraid. They'd compromised so much, they didn't have any weapons. They had disarmed themselves. It's, I can show you. They had disarmed themselves and they followed other gods that had convinced them of new philosophies and ideologies. Welcome to 2022. And now they're being invaded and they don't have anything. But it says the streets were so... I should just go read it to you. No one could travel on the streets. You couldn't go from town to town because crime was out of control. No one did anything. And then Deborah says, and she's the one singing the song. She's also a great singer and, and lyric writer. And she says, no one was doing anything until I, a mother in Israel, arose. I mean, talk about, I mean, that's what he said. He says, I, I, I'm, I'm waiting for the men. I mean, basically, she doesn't say it just like that, but basically it's like, and you can see throughout the story, the men are cowards. The, 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 that is full of cowards. And, and she says, nothing was happening until I, a mother in Israel, arose. And says, this is a, and she started prophesying. She started giving directions. And there's another part of the, the song where they would go down to get the water. And while they were getting the water, they would hear the stories. I should just teach this. They would hear the stories of the heroes of old, the heroes of faith. They'd go down. See, when you would, like street performers, you, you go like, I mean, my son Justin for three years performed on Michigan Avenue. Made good money as a dancer on the streets of Chicago. I mean, he'd go out and he'd freeze. He'd dress himself up. He'd freeze. 
And when he got enough money in the box, he'd do, I, I shouldn't even, they, they take boys right away and I do it. they say, stop, Dad, that's not how you do it. But, you know, he'd pop and lock, and he'd do this great, and I, it, was am- it was amazing. He did Taste of Chicago. He'd, he'd work out in the corners on Michigan Avenue. Anyway, that's where they, he did that. But everyone had to go get water every day. So they'd go to the wells to get water. So if you had a mess, if you were a prophet, or if you were bringing the news, you had a talk show, and you're bringing the news to the people, or if you were singing, and you had... And they would go there and they would sing songs about the heroes of old, about the men of faith. And she says, the singers, the, the singers would declare it and the people would hear it. And they'd come to her and say, why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? And Deborah finally rose up and says, we're going to go back to the way it was. But it was the singers at the well and Deborah and a small remnant. But everybody else had sold themselves out to the false gods. They disarmed themselves. They're occupied by the, the, the Philistines, the, the Canaanites, the Midianites, uh, especially the Canaanites. And it finally came time for Deborah. She called General uh, Barak. It was a Barak, Barak, uh, and says, go fight. And he says, I'm not going to go unless you're... He says, it's one thing to be a prophet sitting here under a tree telling me, go fight the Canaanites. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. That's stupid. If you go, I'll go. She goes, okay, she says... Uh, but the battle, you will go, but you will not win the battle. The victory will go to a woman instead. And that's how the whole story goes. They end up fighting the Midianites. There's a great battle. They, they fight in the Megiddo Valley. And that's where uh, J.L. drives the tent peg through General Sisera's head. Remember, she brings him in, and she acts like she's a friend of the enemy. And he, he gives her a place and puts him under a blanket and stuff. And while he's asleep... She takes a long tent peg. And that's what women, their job uh, was to help set up the tents. And so it wasn't unusual for her to have a, a mallet and a long stake to drive the tents in the ground. And so when he went to sleep, she just walked up like, done this a thousand times, boom, and pinned his head to the ground. And then went out and told everybody, the general's dead. It's like, who got him? I pinned his head to the ground. And that, that won the victory. Uh, the whole point about that was... What was the whole point about that? <laughs> Watch the video. What? Being stirred. Oh, yeah, right here. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake. Right. And, and that's what happened to her. She's watching this, and she's hearing these stories, and she's thinking, it's like, where is this? And so the Spirit stirs her, and she becomes a prophetess. She is the leader, a judge of the nation, of a nation that doesn't want to follow, but enough, the remnant is there, and they begin to follow her. Yeah, and that's, that's the same word stirred up she was stirred up by the spirit wasn't just randomly picked out but she was someone that was like this isn't right this isn't right what are we going to do she hears these stories well i know what's right and the spirit says all right then stirred her up uh, another one here set we just read it second chronicles thirty six twenty two. same we read it in ezra in the first year of cyrus king of persia in order to fulfill the word of the lord spoken by jeremiah the lord moved the heart of cyrus king of persia so there's that's the same word stirred up cyrus uh now you've got to decide does cyrus know the word of the lord did daniel show him the word of the lord but it was nonetheless jeremiah says this is what's going to happen and isaiah had already identified him by name and the lord stirred up cyrus he says i've got a great idea i'm going to send all the nations back and they can rebuild their temples and so there was the again at least if nothing else the spirit was following the word in that case and so these people are stirred up uh and i'll read bottom of page i think it's two verse chapter one verse 14 and the lord stirred up the spirit of zerubbabel and that's again that's emphatic stirred up zerubbabel joshua and the uh the remnant they all heard the word they all came back for this they all were stirred to come back now he stirs them again haggai's preaching to them and the spirit of and they came and worked on the house of the lord of hosts their god again i'll I'll end with this worked on the house the bet of yahweh of hosts now yahweh of hosts hosts means you know we we think of angels but it's a military term it's 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 the forces he is the lord of forces but not the forces of the earth He's the Lord, Yahweh, over all of the forces of the universe. All of the angelicos, uh, good, bad, rebellious, demonic, 
obedient cherubim angels, he is over them all. And so he wants, this, this, and this is who they're building for. They're building for Yahweh. And he is the Lord of hosts. It's like, and he's going to end up with this dinky little temple on this little hill in Jerusalem. And that's what he wants. And he says, just do it. It's, you're going to have more glorious temples to Zeus or uh, Artemis or Isis or whatever than what you can build right here. But get this done because this is going to shake the whole earth. Eschatologically, it's all going to come down to this. Is it going to be as good as Solomon's temple? Uh, it's going to be more glorious. It's going to be bigger and not like you think it's going to be. It's going to involve the Messiah coming the first time, the Messiah coming a second time. And that is where we're at right there. We've got to pick this up next week. I appreciate your patience. I'll pray and uh, we're ready to go. Father, we thank you for the chance to look into your word. We thank you for setting a plan in motion that's bigger than we can even understand, but at the same time calling us to it, giving us an indication and guidance to how to walk in the plans you have for us. We do ask that we would not faint, that we would fear you, that we would be confident of your leadership as we follow your word. Again, we ask that the Spirit would continue to stir us as we respond to your word to do the things you've called us to at this time in history. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here.